Welcome to the Saving the Gorbals podcast. I'm Alistair, and today I'm here with Scottish rapper, author, and social activist Darren McGarvey. Hi Darren, how are you? I'm very well, Alistair, how are you? I'm good. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you're about? Sure. Um, I currently am a writer. I've got a column in the Daily Record. I've done some presenting and writing work for uh, BBC Scotland. And I'm also a hip-hop artist of about 20 years' experience, as well as being a, a husband and a father. Uh, speaking of, how do you get into hip-hop? Like, did anyone inspire you to get into it? Yes, well, I got into hip-hop before the year 2000, which will seem like a long time ago for maybe some of the people watching and maybe for you, Alistair. And it was Tupac and Biggie Smalls, the Wu-Tang Clan, then Eminem came out and that was a big kind of wave and uh, I identified a lot with a lot of the things he was talking about in his music, about growing up in dysfunction and being around alcohol and drugs and violence and stuff. So that really was the kind of inspiration to start writing my own music. And then I got a grant from the Prince's Trust when I was about 19 and that paid for recording my first album. And it's really just sort of grown from there, really. But I would say that's probably my first passion. This has got off on a bit of tangent, but do you like science? Uh, I like, um, I have an interest in science, obviously, because I'm curious about how things work or how things come to be. You know, now and again, I might go down a YouTube rabbit hole looking at videos that try to show you, you know, how the universal end. And I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the neuroscience around uh, learning and development and trauma. I, I like to try and understand, you know, why do people who are under stress behave um, in ways that sometimes aren't helpful to them. So, for example, you might get someone who starts drinking a lot because they are experiencing depression and then they start drinking more and more and then they need the alcohol just to function. And a lot of the discussion around why people behave like that is is about making judgments about them or, or criticising their decisions or, or their choices. But if you look at a lot of the science around that, then you find that you know, things like depression or trauma or using alcohol too much, these alter the architecture of your brain. And so what a person looking at you might perceive as your choice, you're not seeing that from inside your own mind. Your brain has been hacked almost by a substance or by a certain combination of hormones that mean that, you know, you, you certain choices and certain courses of action are, are a bit beyond you. So I'm interested in a lot of that and especially interested in how growing up in poverty affects the developing brain of children, which might in some way explain why we see kids from better off areas doing a bit better in education. It's very fascinating stuff. Uh, do you think, that, it sounds a bit stupid, but do you think that rap and science are linked in any way? Well, there is a science to rapping, you know, in the sense that it involves experimenting, it involves Things like rhyme, you know, which there's a science to, syllables. These are objective things that you can measure. But then where, where science and art differ is that science doesn't really allow for your subjective interpretation of things. The whole point of science is to guard against a person making assumptions about things and coming to their own conclusion, whereas art is about feelings, you know. How do you feel? Or what has your experience been? 
and and I think that there's room for both. Uh, as long as we don't get them too mixed up, but certainly, like you could program a computer to write a rap, whether the rap would be any good or would possess any meaning or contain any meaning, is another thing entirely. I don't quite think they've got computers to a place where they have a soul yet, but we'll see. I, I know some computers that have got more soul than some rappers. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> have you been affected, or how have you been affected by lockdown? Uh, I'm 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 one of the lucky ones to be honest because of my book and my work and stuff like that. My income has been steady. My my work isn't dependent on you know a nine to five and turning up all the time. So even though it was a bit quieter and I did experience a, a quite a significant hit to my income, uh, I had enough in reserve to manage. And then the government did the self employment scheme and all that, which was a pretty generous uh, scheme that was helpful to me last year but no one in our family got coronavirus we were kind of untouched by the virus itself although we did deal with the pressure and the anxiety and living in in kind of enclosed spaces and I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old who are obviously four and two during the lockdown and you know entertaining children that age while trying to work from home can be challenging too for them as well as um, parents. But we managed it. We managed it. We certainly um, have a lot to be grateful for. Do you think people who grow up in less well-off areas have coped less well during the COVID pandemic? That's a good good question. Um, And there's lots of ways of looking at it. When we talk about how people cope, we're talking about uh, their resilience, you know, so how, how well can they manage in difficult circumstances? So it depends, first of all, on what a family or a household or an individual's level of resilience is. And obviously, if they if they have a stable job or they're on furlough or self-employment, then they might not have the immediate financial difficulty that some people who have lost their jobs or maybe there's someone who's a carer in a household or maybe there's alcoholism or addiction in the household. And then we know that a lot of the strain of lockdown placed on families means that maybe families have had to separate from one another, or sometimes children have to be taken into care because there, there are problems at home. So it really just depends on, on, on that first aspect of resilience. But then even the most resilient households will experience difficulties that are probably a bit more severe than families with larger disposable incomes, more money, because we all know that when you have a bit of extra cash, then it means that you can take the sting out of some of life's difficulties. It gives you options. It gives you choices. It means that you can plan ahead. And I think that people who have been fortunate enough to be able to do that will probably have had a slightly less difficult experience of lockdown than people who don't. Uh, Do you think that Lockdown and the pandemic will activate any aces, not activate, that's a weird way to put it, but like make them worse. Yeah, so you're, you're talking about adversity for children. So when, when things are difficult at home, so aces is things like an adverse childhood experience would be something like your mum and dad breaking up or your parents or whoever looks after you breaking up or maybe um, an adult losing their temper and frightening you in some way or maybe them not being well enough for whatever reason to take care of you and make sure that you've eaten enough and that your hygiene has been taken care of and all that sort of stuff. Uh, absolutely, because I think what the pandemic does is it, it 
no matter how much reassurance we are getting from scientists on television or politicians, you know, that, that it will be over at a certain point, the thing that's constantly reinforced is the threat level. And for people who are struggling and uh, already in conditions of dysfunction or difficulty at home, their threat sensitivity is already very high. This is partly why they feel afraid all the time, partly why a lot of people drink or take drugs, because that helps them to manage those feelings of fear. So I think anything that increases a stress level in a household has the potential to lead to further adversity. But then, you know, depending on the support that's available, whether that comes from government in the form of money and grants, or whether that comes from the community, you know, services or or just people, your neighbour coming in to check on you and, you know, having friends and family around you, then this can all be managed. Unfortunately, for some households, it might get a little too much and you might have a bit of an explosive event and then maybe some help will come uh, after the fact. But there's no doubt that the pandemic has shown a lot of the pressure points in our society and in our communities and hopefully that will become part of how our society evolves after all this is over. Uh, Do you think that lockdown or COVID will have any positive effects in Scotland? Well, that's an interesting question because obviously you want to be careful how you say it because there are people who are still living with the effects of COVID and you don't want to sound like, you know, you're trying to make an opportunity out of difficulties that people are experiencing. But I think like historically, we all often at a point of crisis as a society find ways to evolve and develop in recognition that some aspects of how we used to organise our society don't work as well as we might have thought they did. So examples of signs of progress are discussions about inequality, discussions about universal basic income, a recognition that people who are working class are are more exposed to the virus, are likelier to get it, and then because of sometimes the, the health problems associated with growing up in a deprived area, your experience of the virus will be more severe. Also, housing being an issue, you know, lots of people crammed into small spaces means it's perfect conditions for a virus to transmit and spread very quickly. If you look at the uptake for the virus in terms of, like, by postcode, you find that poorer areas where the housing's poorer, where there's less public space are the ones that have suffered it most greatly. So in a sense, I think a lot of us who understand the the way that poverty works and how it disadvantages people, particularly children, then I I think a lot of these arguments have been validated. They've been proven to be accurate, and it will take a lot of work for people in power to deny that now. I think the most obvious area where you can see the effects is, is in the education because the kids who go to school in the poorer areas are already at a disadvantage because their teachers have to deal with a lot more different types of behaviour, different types of learning, different types of uh, educational needs, as well as the schools being quite densely populated. Sometimes they're a bit run down. And then you've got this additional thing of a year of disrupted education, perhaps even longer, with the exams uh, scandal. And so, so um, you know, it's it's pretty obvious that if you grow up in a certain postcode that's not associated with being well off, then you're at a disadvantage no matter how smart you are, no matter how hard you work, no matter how healthy you are. Uh, before we end, is there, any, is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners? 
um, did you come to do this through the barn? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You working with the barn? Yeah, that's a great project, and I'm always raving about it. Um, any chance that I get. So I guess anyone who's watching, you know, it's it's so important that you stay connected to community. You know, if you look at recently what's been happening with Glasgow Life, the council and all the youth services and community centres and a lot of them are being threatened with closure or being moved. And I think one of the reasons the barn has lasted the test of time is because it's reflective of the community. It's not trying to sort of parachute into the community. I used to work with Glasgow Life in the St. Francis Centre, which is one of the places that's threatened with closure. And I remember one time suggesting, I was like, listen, no one's coming to our youth club, you know, no one's going to the youth club round the corner, no one's going to, you know, we were getting sometimes two kids, right, we would have more youth workers there than we would have young people, we didn't have facilities, we didn't have really resources, and in a strange way, we were competing with the barn, and I just thought that was silly. You know, and the kids would come round to St. Francis Centre tell us all about what they're doing at the barn. I remember saying to the manager, my manager at the time when I worked there, I was like, why don't we just stop this? Why don't we just close this youth club and like go round and support the barn? You know, like since the council's partly funding the barn, why are we competing with the barn? I don't understand. You know, we've got a lot we could learn from the barn and bring it back to a better youth club in future. But there was just no concept of that, you know, and these are people who are highly paid, who have a lot of authority, and, like, that sort of idea seems almost silly to them. And it made sense to me because I think as far as youth work goes and as far as community organising goes, the barn is about as good an example as you will find uh, in this country. So if you're at the barn, stick in and stay there because it's it, you're very, very lucky to have a place like that on your doorstep. I think that's quite a positive place to leave it off. Uh, so I'll, I'll say goodbye to you. Very good, Alistair. Thanks very much. It was lovely speaking to you. Lovely speaking to you too. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me. I'm Alistair and you've been listening to the Step of the Goals podcast. <laughs>